0: If you think to yourself, here's my plan, you have to say, in case I run into problems, what am I going to do?
1: Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Kerry Patterson, the four-time New York Times bestselling co-author of Crucial Conversations, Crucial Accountability, Influencer, and Change Anything. He received his doctorate from Stanford and has been featured in more than 150 print and radio programs, including MSN Career Builder and CNN. He is also the co-founder of Vital Smarts, an innovator in corporate training and leadership development. His latest book is called The Gray Fedora. And here's the interview.
3: Hi, Kerry. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Eric. I'm excited to get you on your book. Crucial Conversations is one of those books that made a big difference on me. I think I knew some of the concepts in it, but when seeing it all packaged up the way you had it, it really is a very powerful way to um, approach interacting with the people around us. So we'll get deeper into that in a minute, but we'll start off with the parable. So there's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second. And he looks up at his grandfather and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do.
0: Well, it's a nice beginning to our crucial conversation because one of the first things you have to deal with when stakes are high, opinions vary, emotions start running strong, is people start turning sort of ugly and sort of have to ask yourself what's going on there and are they sort of going to be relegated to that sort of style for the rest of their life or can people change? And the parable sort of highlights a battle that's been going on in psychology for years. is Do we have these sort of fixed traits that we're born with, these qualities, and characteristics that can't change, or is it a function of how we learn and grow and what we feed? And the answer turns out to be it's how we learn and grow and feed. And uh, our book talks about how to avoid feeding uh, bad assumptions and how to uh, bring life to good assumptions so that interactions go more smoothly.
3: Yeah, exactly. So why don't we start off and talk about what is a crucial conversation? What makes a conversation crucial versus just another you know, couple minutes of chatting?
0: Well, when the stakes are high um, and opinions vary and emotions run strong, or, or, excuse me, are running strong, those are the three characteristics of a crucial conversation. More than a casual, hey, how you doing? Stakes are high. Um, we're not both agreeing, easy to going, and our emotions run, are, are running strong under those particular cases, we are in behavior. Uh, that's what makes it crucial.
3: And unfortunately, that seems to be at least my experience is when those things are happening is the time that I'm most likely to um, be coming out of a very reactive place. It's a lot harder to be strategic and think about how I want to communicate when I am um, emotionally charged like that.
0: Yeah, well, we're hardwired to do that. Um, we didn't know this with any certainty until recently with the high resonance magnetic imagery where we can watch brain function and we can see what happens as someone sort of throws us you know, under the bus or attacks us or criticizes our ideas. Rather than saying, that's interesting when we find out why they believe that, we prepare for a counterattack. Uh, and we actually move from using the prefrontal cortex where the high cognitive processing goes on for more irrational conversations into the amygdala, which is preparing us to go into fight or flight. And so it, the wiring this in our body, adrenaline hits, and all of a sudden they, we feel attacked, and we attack back, and we feed that wrong wolf.
3: That that amygdala, he comes up a lot on this show. It gets into all kinds of trouble. <laughs> it serves a valuable purpose, but it's you know it's uh, it's a little hypersensitive for for today's world. Yeah,
0: my partners and I are certainly writing on the topic because people ask so much about it. And we have colleagues who are doing research on the. Uh, high-residence magnetic, excuse me, imagery, and uh, we're learning a lot more about it, and uh, it turns out that um, it was beautifully designed for a time where um, we weren't complicated and we didn't live in clans, but now that we live in clans and we're interdependent, it doesn't serve us well. Uh, It's nice when the hair stands up in the back of our neck in in a dark alley, which happens uh, once in every thirty years, and, and it doesn't serve us well when you go into a meeting and someone attacks us.
3: We talk about okay, we have these brains that were designed for when we, you know, lived on the savannah, for example. But when do yeah. our brains start to catch up? I mean, is there is there any sense of you know how long? We, you know, I'm just kind of curious because it you they've got to be progressing in that direction, I would think. And I know that the time I think of the world and evolutionary time are very different.
0: Yeah, you're talking hundreds of thousands of years you're talking about genetic engineering that occurs through mutations mutations occur when certain you know uh, you know rays you know shoot through our head or when cells split and then then it either makes the the organism uh, better suited to its environment which in which case is rewarding and it it, it makes and it continues or it doesn't most things don't so that process that that whole process of mutation is indeed hundreds of thousands of years. we can't wait. We have to learn how to uh, be aware of what's happening, catch it, what's happening within ourselves and within others, and come up with alternate behaviors. Because that's hard wiring, and we don't fix hard wiring through willing it. We don't fix it through training it. We don't fix it through anything other than waiting for it to be hardwired, and I'm not even in waiting anymore.
3: And then just overriding it when we see it. So let's talk about what the key concepts are. You've got a framework for how to conduct crucial conversations in a more effective way. So can you can we yeah. just start sort of walking through that?
0: Well, first of all, as we find ourselves uh, in a position where we see people starting to argue, ourselves included, we have to stop taking a, a breath and sort of ask ourselves, wait a minute, what's going on here? And rather than allowing ourselves to to get angry, we have to stop and sort of say, why would a reasonable and rational person be doing what they're currently doing? And that goes to feeding the wolf. That goes to what stories do we tell ourselves? And so we try to enter a crucial conversation uh, if things start turning ugly, and we try to sort of think the best of others to make good motive. So rather than sort of saying, wait a minute, you know, I'm sick and tired of you screaming or yelling and whatnot, you would say something more like, um gee i can see you're pretty upset about this i'm not quite sure why could you tell me more and we move from angry to curious and curious of course leads to uh, people opening up and sharing the the whole story
3: thinking the better of others so i think i've i've heard it you know assume positive intent you know i think it goes against the i've talked before on a mini episode about the fundamental attribution error where we sort of give ourselves the benefit of the doubt but not others and you know that is such a powerful way to approach things if you approach it with, you know, why, yeah, I love the way you guys phrase that. Why would a reasonable, good person, um, behave this way?
0: Yeah. Rather than what's the worst and most personal way I could take this, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah which, which is the more likely way to go respond.
3: And I think the other thing that can be so hard is if we've spent a lot of time with um, in particular relationships handling our crucial conversations in a devastating way, we've, we've sort of brought out that worst in that other person often enough that it's really hard, you know, it takes a lot of effort to get back to pre all the damage that's been done from both sides at that point.
0: With one client I was working with who was constantly going to sort of an angry mode He worked on his skills. Some of the other skills, of course, include establishing mutual purpose. How can we both succeed in this? You know, if they misunderstand, you stopping and saying what you do mean versus don't mean. And so, as we began to teach him and others these skills, this particular guy became very good. But the people who worked worked with him for a ten year period didn't trust it. They thought, Yeah, 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 yeah. This is some thing he's going through. And it'll take, a, it'll take a while, but he'll be back to his old way. Well, he didn't go back because the skills that he learned were you know, ones that helped him in, in, in tough conversations. And those are the kinds of things that carry with you. He had to be transferred before people would accept him for who he became. They're tough on each other.
3: Right. So after we recognize we're in a crucial conversation and we, we start with that, um, you know, assuming positive intent with the other person, where do we go from there?
0: Well, the, the issue is it depends on what you're, what's, you're seeing happening. And so you're having to stop and diagnose. And if they think you're out to get you, you're out to get them. So they say something like, yeah, 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 I've seen this. All you really want is what's best for your department. You don't care our department at all. You need to deal with that directly by establishing mutual purpose and say, actually, what I'd like to do is end this conversation by solving the, a prob- the problem in a way that we're both satisfied. I'm not interested in winning at your cost. And once people realize that your intention is not to sort of you win and they lose, they're much more likely to settle down to a healthy conversation.
3: Right. And so a lot of the work that you guys do is in the workplace, but this stuff applies every bit as much and possibly more in our own, in our personal lives and and our relationships.
0: Yeah, we were some of the first in the country 30 years ago that actually offered um, workshops after work, where the people who had been through training would have their spouses come in and they would apply and learn the skills. The spouse would learn the skills and then they would practice them uh, in ways that would benefit their home. And it was often considered a perk to work at a company where you're getting enhanced parenting skills.
3: <laughs> now, one of the things that you guys talk about, you've got some general, a general framework, and one of them that you talk about is master my stories. So this is maybe before we go into that conversation. What, what does that mean?
0: Well, you know, uh, people will often say something like, you know, I was doing fine, and then they made me mad.
3: Mm-hmm. That's
0: an interesting way of describing it, because no one can make you mad. You make yourself mad, and the process of doing it is very well known. The other person does something. Let's say, for example, you're working on a project, and you're struggling on one element. You can't get it figured out. And as you're getting ready to leave, uh, excuse me, as you come in to work with them, uh, the next morning, you run into a colleague who says, you know what, I knew you were working on that problem, and... Uh, I stayed after a little bit because I was waiting for the mail uh, to be delivered over here, in inter, interdepartmental mail. And anyway, I started working on that problem. And I solved it. What do you think of that? And I ask people, how would you feel if someone came and said they solved the problem you're working on? Right. And about half say, I, I would be happy. Another half say, I wouldn't be happy. And so the issue was, well, what makes you either happy or unhappy? And it goes to what you think, that, uh, what was the motive behind what they did? So we tell ourselves a story. They enact a the behavior which is neutral. They did something to solve a problem. Half the people say, "Gosh, they did that because they wanted to make my life easier, and they're a good team a team player." And, and I'm happy that they did that, and I'm happy in our relationship. And others tell themselves a different story. They say, "Oh yeah, yeah, I know them. They did that to make me look bad. They're going to announce in the meeting that they solved the problem that I couldn't solve." Right. And so so you you see a behavior, you draw a conclusion about the other person's motives. And then that's what makes you angry. If you think the motive is bad, you become angry. If you think the motive is good, you're not angry. And that's the story we tell, and that's the process we go through.
3: And now we'll get back to the rest of the interview with Carrie Patterson. So one of the things I'm curious about, and we explore it a lot on this show, is um, yeah, th- exactly what you described. We're, we're always telling ourselves stories.
2: Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your
0: savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
3: We are making up an interpretation of what happens out in the world, and we have some degree of control uh, over what that interpretation is. The, The thing I'm always curious about is... And the question is, when are we? When are we? You know, when are we assuming positive intent? When are we um, doing some positive thinking that's helpful? And when do we slide into denial where we're sort of putting a happy spin on everything, regardless? Well, yeah,
0: yeah. The idea is, is that we're, we're doing this to help us as we go into the conversation, so we're not angry because when we're angry, it just not going to work. It's not. We haven't. We haven't come to our conclusion, but by asking, why would a reasonable person do that? What we've done is we set our emotions up to a point where we can handle it in an effective way. So we then walk in and we describe the problem, and we say, gosh, and the problem is the definition of what was expected versus what was observed. And so we're now going to go deal with the problem, but we're going to be fairly open about it. It's going to sound more curious. It's going to be, you know, rather than I can't believe you didn't get me the project in time, you would say, gosh, Larry, can we talk? Sure. Um, And you might set it aside in a Safe environment was just the two of you. I was expecting to have this uh, project done at three, as you suggested. Three came and left, I did, uh, and I didn't get it at uh, 3.30 and four. I couldn't find you, and eventually at 4.30 it came. I was sort of wondering what happened. And so you're describing expected what was observed, and then you would, do, then you would pause and ask for the, their viewpoint on it. Because you don't know what happened. Their boss may have come to them and say, screw that project. We've got a, the president coming in. Go fix this, and we'll do that. one later." You have no idea what happened. You really don't. And so you're going to describe the problem, what was expected, what was observed and then diagnosed, and you're going to do it in the context of not being angry and smarmy and all of yourself because you haven't told yourself an ugly story. That sets the theme. You still deal with the problem.
3: Yep. It's a great way to look at it. And you talk about when we go into, you know, we, we sort of, so mastering my stories, I think, is, is getting control over that and not going in with a negative story, being open. And then you talk about the next stage is really the confronting with safety. So you talked about describing the gap. Um, right. You know, and so what are ways that we can help people to feel safe in? conversations? Because either we've got a history of maybe being in unsafe conversations with that particular person, or just in general, where, you know, people can be really gun shy. So what are ways that we can help people with that?
0: The several things that we do to make people feel unsafe. One of them would be, I described earlier, is we enter a conversation with ourselves and our goals and minds and don't care about others. And so they have a reason to feel unsafe, which is, oh, okay, yeah, here we go again. You're going to argue with me. You're going to beat me down. You're going to get your way, and I'm going to end up having to go do something I don't want to do. That makes me feel unsafe. And, or, or it could happen in, in an instant where you're using inflammatory language. You're pushing really hard. You're cutting them off in a good sentence. You're, in, you're uh, inflating the, the data to support you and deflating the supportive data. That makes them unsafe. You know, know, there's a lot of things, and so what you're going to be watching for is, what am I doing? It would make people sort of pull away from the table, but equally important, watching them to see if, no matter what you're doing, are they feeling unsafe based upon what's in their head, what did have happened to them before. We're watching for evidence that they're feeling unsafe, and then rather than attacking, we make it safe by establishing mutual purpose or clarifying the difference.
3: Yeah, I like where you, you. one of the things you say is to talk tentatively, and not... Like tentatively, like I'm shy or I'm afraid to talk, but without expressing, being open to the ideas that uh, other people have, or coming with it like, well, here's what I see. You know, what what are you seeing? Instead of you yeah. always do this, yeah. or it's you know, we tend to go to such extremes sometimes to make a point.
0: Yeah, that's the, the harsh language, the of cutting off, inflating them. You know, um, stating as if it were God's truth. Well, any, any rational person knows. If you want to see what untentative language looks like, if you want to see what not to do, if you want to sort of say, I've been to the pinnacle of bad, go watch Congress in Action. (laughs) Because they're 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 printing for cameras. They are saying, you know, I've been thinking about this. Maybe I could be wrong, but let me just pass this out. Let me pray devil's advocate. All language of tentativity, all of which help make it much safer to discuss things openly. It's sort of like, I can't believe the people across the aisle are so incredibly stupid. I mean, that's how they're, whether they're saying it or not. But I mean, the fact of the matter is, is like, we're we're all all right and right. You're all wrong. You know, and it's like, wow. And, and, and I mean, no wonder we can't come to any kind of compromise understanding you know, third way. Uh, we're entrenched. We're not listening. We're not making it safe for people to listen to us. So if to take a deep breath and sort of say, this isn't about printing in front of the cameras. It's not about winning, not about looking good. It's about adding meaning to the pool. There's this pool of meaning in front of us. You have some of it. I have some of it. If we can get it all out there, we'll then act with much better information. We'll make much better choices.
3: Yeah, exactly. And one of the things I think is interesting is, you, you know, this idea of making it safe in the conversation. It, sometimes that's not a one-time thing. So you, it, you guys describe, well, you can do that at the beginning of the conversation, but you need to be watching throughout the conversation to see if yeah. people are, are indeed feeling safe. There are some, you know, there's some red flags, some things you can see, and then you, you just say, you know, step out of the content. You know, rebuild yeah. the safety and then come back yeah. in, and that if you don't take the time to do that you're not going to make any progress on the content
0: no, 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 because they both of you are entrenched they're entrenched, and so they're treating any information that you're bringing as an invading virus they 're going to fight it off, and sort of sort of say, "Wait a minute, let me stop, let me break this, and you break it in se- and we've talked about several ways, but one of them would say it sounds like you're thinking what i'm trying to achieve here is uh, a solution. That works for me, but it's going to cause you additional work. They go, yeah, heck yeah, that's been going on for years. Well, let me be clear, I'm not going to be happy if you leave with the solution that works for me but doesn't work for you, because I know over the long run that won't work. And we spend some time, and you just can watch the tension come off their face, the relaxation to sit back. Now it's going to be a conversation. They're they're not having to sort of hype their arguments. We're not going to be hyping ours. Uh, We're not going to end up in our usual sort of fighting and then leaving unhappy. We're going to maybe stick with this until we're both happy. We're going to find a third way.
3: Right. So one of the things is you your your books are about, you've, you've got this method, and it's really about how to conduct these conversations. You've got more specifics in other books about how do you handle confrontations, or how do you handle um, situations of holding people accountable. What I'm curious about is, so we know, now we know how to do it, but boy, is it hard to step into those conversations. It takes a lot of courage. What are some ways that people can build up the courage, or enter into those conversations when they're really hesitant to do so?
0: You know, we, we learn the skills not by sort of dreaming them up or sitting in an office and brainstorming. We watch real people at work, and we say, oh, dude, that was that tentative language, reduced defensiveness, that establishing mutual purpose made it so that they were moving together. We would see people doing it. And when we saw people, you know, who really handled what I would consider uh, maybe um, touchy conversation and they have dealt with something as difficult as someone's competency, etc. cetera. Um, and afterwards he would interview them and sort of say, gosh, how did you get the courage to do that? They never saw themselves as being courageous. And the reason was, is they were skilled. Their history had been such that if they entered a high stakes conversation, they had so many skills that it almost always ended well. If it almost always ended well, it'd be like sort of going to a planet that had air and breathing and saying, you know, I don't have to worry about that anymore. You know, And they didn't worry about high-stakes conversations because for them it was normal because they had the skills. So the best solution is, is to crack open a book, <laughs> sit down with a friend, and work on enhancing their skills, and the confidence will then fall.
3: Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. Um, I've had a bunch of successful, crucial conversations, and I've also had a ton of really terrible conversations. Yeah. And so yeah. I still find, like, even though I've been successful, the overwhelming majority, if you go back – all the years I've been alive, it's it's hard to overcome that, even though mentally I go, yeah, I know I can do this. I've done it before. Every time I do it, it's good. There's still that underlying dread.
0: Well, we're preparing. You know, that's, that's the sort of, you know, that's the, the coming off the Savannah preparation that we have is prepare for the worst, think of the worst, it could be the worst, and it's hard to overcome that. But once again, I'll say work on your skills as the skills lead to more positive results. With time, you'll begin to be more confident.
3: Yeah. And I think the other thing the books do a really good job of the accountability and the confrontation book is, is really talking about why those things why it's so important to have those conversations and how valuable it can be. And and really seeing I think the other side is that is when you start to recognize like you can come out the other side of those conversations, everybody's way better off, instead of just, it's not like you, you, you head off a bad situation, you can actually make things a a lot better. (laughs)
0: You know, we have a lot of people who first cannot get over their notion that, so what you're going to teach me is, I get my way, right? That's the only way they can see a success. They can't see a success as being one where uh, I bring some things in, you bring some things in, and, and we come up with something you never should have thought of. Or, or maybe I'll say, now that I understand your point of view, yours is a better idea. And that's a victory. We are so competitive with a special kind of competition, meaning I win, you lose, that it's hard for many people in radio interviews, the host often will say, yeah, 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 I get this crucial conversation thing, but, you know, how do I get my boss? And it's sort of like, well, what do you mean? Well, I don't like it, but I want to get it. So, how do I get my boss? And he said, we're (laughs) not trying to teach you how to get in here. And it just, because no matter what we say, okay, okay, I get that, but how do I get my boss? Right, right. Like this mindset that's been, you know, sort of cracked, you know, poured into their ear and left there for years to foam it. And so, for a lot of people, um, it's going to be a long time uh, until they learn the skills, apply the skills, and then start bringing a different attitude, which is, you know what, maybe we both have something to say here.
3: So I'd like to change directions to another book of yours called Change Anything that's about how we change behaviors, habits, and and make them stick over the long term. So um, one of the things that – I do some work with people about doing this, and I think we have a tendency when we're not successful at changing behaviors or habits, we have a tendency to say – I'm terrible at this, or I never can do this, or I don't have enough willpower, or I'm the kind of person who... And you guys have done a lot of research that shows that that's not really what's happening. Can you tell us what is happening?
0: Well, most of us are, you know, um, in a situation where the world around us, in fact, it's true for everybody, is perfectly organized to create the current behaviors that you're exhibiting. And so, let's say you're you're spending too much, or you're not exercising enough. Pick something that we all work on coming the beginning of the year, and we think, you know, um, gosh, I'm a bad person because I haven't been able to achieve that. I'm going to really try harder. And we call that the willpower trap. We assume that if we just tried harder, we'd you know we'd end up better off. And the fact of the matter is, what we well, really ought to consider is that we're blind and outnumbered. There's about maybe ten or fifteen or twenty different forces currently acting on us from. Peer pressure to personal drive to uh, our lack of skills to organizational structure all lining up to get the, the the current inappropriate behavior we don't even see them and until you can see them and then deal with them in a in a broader way, you're going to constantly be falling back on will thought low power, which is insignificant. Hey, have you ever gone into a into a, a casino or they're gambling i have. Have you thought about the design of that casino and what that design is trying to achieve?
3: Well, I have... Since I've read your books, I know where this is going. But I think you, uh, <laughs> but you, Sorry. no, no, it, it's it's actually good. I mean, the point you're making is like they, des, you know, the the carpet is designed to be so ugly that you want to look up and you want to look around. Yeah, you want to
0: look down. There's no, there's no clocks on the wall. There's yep. no windows. You don't you don't pay with cash because you're losing money. They make you change it so you're using chips and chips are just little pretend things. And uh, if when you win, there's big bells, and you lose, There's not big bells, and you can make a list of, maybe 200 things, maybe a book, six, inches. I can't remember how thick it was. We met with a guy in Australia who was the king of this. There's a book like four inches thick, you know, sort of saying this is what's affecting the behavior of gambling. What they, the goal is is to have you lose money and not be angry.
3: Right. Keep doing that. Yep. Yeah, and and, so, and yeah. the world is stacked that way, right?
0: Oh, yeah. So you know, my my wife uh, room at Grand Canyon with a woman who played the organ in the uh, great uh, uh, the dining room, beautiful dining room that looks out over the canyon. And d- normally during the day there'd be this lovely music being played. But during during peak hours, the music would pick up faster and faster, like roll out the barrel, da 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 Because people eat faster when there's music playing. If you were to ask them why they got back from the <laughs> dining room <them> so quickly, <laughs> I don't. I think any of them would say because.
2: Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.
0: music was playing fast. right? I don't think people who get, who get up off of restaurant chairs... To, to get back to their car thinking they were going to stay in the fast food restaurant and have their food, realized that the reason they got out because that chair was designed to be so uncomfortable so it would drive them out of the room so more more customers could come in. The world is designed to, to get the inappropriate behaviors around us, and we outline in the book, Change Anything, six different sources that you ought to be looking to to see how they're playing to either motivate you to do the right thing, Motivate if they did the wrong thing, Enable you did the right thing, or Enable you did the wrong thing? And you've got six ways of looking at that.
3: Yeah, that's what I wanted to do is, you know, spend time on those six factors of influence. So the ways that we can align our lives, the people in our lives, all that, to ensure the greatest chance of success. And you you say that the the... The difference between people who don't really use any of those factors of influence or only use one or two versus people who use six or more is, I think you said something like 10 times the success rate, which is what I tell people I work with. This isn't about you being a person who has the willpower or a person who can do this or can't do it. It's about the strategies. How are you going about it? So tell me what, you know, let's maybe work our way through what those six are.
0: Okay. Well, we first break them into two categories, motivation and ability. Uh, motivation means you want to do something not do it, as you might guess. Ability means even if you're motivated, can or can you can you not do it? And so we, uh, the fundamental attributionary we referred to earlier is to assume that all problems are motivation problems. And a lot of the things are due to ability. Uh, when you look at people who are having trouble with their finances, they often are incapable of calculating um, what's happening with their savings, etc. They're not good at math. They don't know how to create uh, savings, books, et cetera, et cetera, and that's the aspect that needs to be worked on in order for them to improve. They're, they're, they're clueless as to what's happening to them. Whereas we thought if we just told them, quit spending money, which is the motivational piece, it would all go away. So we look at the motivational distinction, and then we look at personal, you know, am I motivated intrinsically? You know? And that's where we often will focus because it's a big part of our problem. I like the taste of fatty foods, for example. I'm motivated personally. Then we look at personal ability. You know, do I have the, the skill set required to enact the behaviors that are required to get me to change? From there, we move to social, and we sort of say, you know, we're, we are indeed social animals. What are others doing? Do we have other people, you know, helping me at the problem, or are they hindering me? You know, are they, you know, you know, we, we interviewed people who had been alcoholics for 30 years and. Many, many, many of them found out that they were unable to change until they aligned themselves with people who were going to help them with their personal change project as than hinder. It. Right. Uh, and so others can, others can be accomplices or they can, or they can be friends. And we have to know what you wish. And we often have to have a conversation, negotiating with them, to move them from being an accomplice, a drinking buddy, a eating buddy, a spending buddy, whatever they are, to someone who says, hey, I thought you were kind of working on that. You know, maybe I can help you here. So are others motivating us and are others enabling us? And then the final one, and this is the one that I was referring to earlier when you walk into a a casino, how's the physical world around you uh, structured? If you're having trouble spending money, you you realize there are people right now pouring over endless videotapes of individuals in various shopping scenarios, deciding whether a cent mark or a dollar mark will entice you to buy more. Which one is more enticeable? How many inches away can it be? Et cetera, et cetera. There's a book on why, why, why we spend uh, that looks at the 200 characteristics of uh, the physical world that's being changed so that we purchase more. And so we then look at this physical world. Does it enable us? Does it motivate us? And uh, we now have all six sources motivation ability for individual social and organizational or physical world
3: so the the last two the structural motivation is Uh um is do we have like give me an example of a structural motivation when it comes to say you know losing weight we've been using that analogy what is a what is an example of that
0: people kind of do that one um uh in other words uh, putting up putting up signs and reminders. Would be a, a way to motivate yourself physically, so you don't have to have your friends calling you and telling you uh, we actually are working we, we have developed a product over the years of, uh, that that uh, cues people and sort of says, uh, "How are you doing today?" It uses their smart device it, it has a little conversation with them about whether you know uh, what, what they've eaten and why and how they're doing it so you can you're going to see lots of applications coming out in the future. They're going to build, you know, pictures of your grandchildren you want to play with, and that's why you're trying to take weight off. Are going to come to your uh, come onto your screen 15 minutes before you go to lunch. That would that would be a structural motivation.
3: So say we we throw off the willpower trap. We look at these six sources of motivation, and and we really work to line all these different things up. We've got we you know we learn how to do the things. We've got our friends involved. Um, you know, we, we set up our environment. What are other things that are important to staying on course? Because one of the things that I think is challenging for a lot of people is we start off good, we structure our lives around all these things, we make some progress. But particularly if it's something we're doing, because we're trying to um, solve a problem, or we're trying to change something that causes this pain is that pain tends to recede. So does so do the reasons for doing it sometimes. So do you have some tips for how to stay? Uh, on the track when you're doing well,
0: yeah. You, what you have to do, yeah, you have to pre- prepare for setbacks. If you think to yourself, "Here's my plan, and here's how I'm going to execute it perfectly," that's that's the way you need to start. I mean, you don't want to start off with failure in mind, but you have to say, in case I run into problems, what am I going to do? And what you're going to do is you're going to stop and say, what led to this particular deviation to my plan? And then how do I restructure the world to make sure that doesn't happen again, which is very different than saying, what am I going to do to, you know, to re-motivate myself? Or um, what typically happens, we say to ourselves, I'm just bad at this and we quit. But instead we sort of say, okay, something just happened. Oh, geez, I sat down at the table uh, and I had three friends with me and they started ordering dessert. I'm not good at restaurants and I'm going to figure out, in fact, I told them I didn't want desserts, and they kept pushing me for desserts. And rather than just giving in, I'm going to have a conversation with them and turn them from accomplice into friends. And I'm going to say, gee, you know, next time we go out and really, really working hard, you know, uh, I'd rather you not try to talk me into eating and sharing desserts with you. Would that be okay? And they I say, okay, so I have a plan for overcoming the deviation rather than just feeling bad about yourself or quitting.
3: We're near the end of our time, but one last question I'll ask you is you describe vital behaviors so that it's not, you know, being on, being on, um, alert all the time, wears us out. Willpower is a resource that can go away. So you talk about focusing on vital behaviors. What does that mean?
0: Yeah. What you're going to find is there's, there's going to be certain things that if you do them, they're going to affect your life in more powerful ways. And so, um, Rather than just affecting one or two things in your life, they're going to affect many aspects in your life. That's why I think for, for lots of people, um, finding, uh, turning their, their accomplices into friends is an important one because it then plays itself out as a help in so many different ways. So the vital behavior, the behavior you're working on is I'm going to talk with people who are currently, you know, uh, encourage me to do the wrong behavior and ask them to stop doing that. Not only will they stop doing that, but they may start encouraging you. Uh, they're people you run into all the time, and so it happens quite frequently. And so this particular one gets three or four or five benefits out of it. And when you do that, you start making bigger changes, and they're very personal.
3: Yep, and I I love that when you said earlier the we are we are blind and outnumbered yeah. when we go after trying to change these things. And I'm always amazed by how just a little bit of help and encouragement and support and and a and can creating a plan makes these things so much easier and so much more powerful. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, to to get done. So thank you for, you know, creating all the work that you've done around that.
0: You're welcome, Eric. And thanks for having me on your show.
3: Yeah, it's been really enjoyable and um we'll talk again soon. Thank you.
0: Okay.
3: Okay. Bye. Bye.
1: You can learn more about Carrie Patterson and this podcast at oneufeed.net slash Carrie.